This episode of Roderick on the Line is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. This month, they ask the double clicks to help me say hi to John. Greetings, John. What you been eating today? Roderick on the Line. Hello. Hey, John. Beep, boop, beep, boop. Beep, boop. Would you like to begin a conversation online? <laughs> how 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 are my pops and buzzes? How's my buzzing buzzing crackle and pop? Let me listen. Pop pop crackle crackle. Did you change something? Crackle buzz buzz. Hmm. On a poetics. It turned it turned out that my <laughs> that's right. Those are on it. You know, I used to have a college uh, teacher <laughs> that did I ever tell you this? No. He uh, he pronounced that word onomatopoeia. Ooh, that's a little cute. Because he, he, he added a ligature. Well, he felt that that he felt that the Greek letter that is A and E squished together, uh, or I think it's is it A? It's O and yeah, E. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, not a ligature. It's a diphthong. Uh, yeah, he he wanted it pronounced. He felt that that was the correct pronunciation. Onomatopoeia. Oh. And he and he used that word all the time in the class. I don't remember what the class was, but now I cannot say it any other way. <laughs> it is. It is the artist anal uh-huh. of uh, of 1990. On I don't want to take you off your tech talk. Buzz crackle. <laughs> but I do. I do. I want to talk about uh, pronouncing something or doing something a certain way correctly, even when it sounds wrong. I would like to circle mm. back to that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what turns out? Tur- turns oh, it turns out all that buzzing and crackling was just in my voice. Oh. <laughs> You just needed to clear your throat a little bit. Yeah, it was just I had a little bit of I had a little bit of a uh, I had a, a, a eight eight gig byte. Oh, you uh, had the uh, you had a roll off on the ground switch. Yeah, exactly. That exactly. was the problem. I I was uh, I was uh, what I was doing was I was um, I was eight uh, bit. I was talking oh, in eight. Oh, you were doing eight bit like a Nintendo. Yeah, yeah. It sounded, it sounded kind of like the beginning of a lot of Sonic Youth songs. Mm-hmm. Where you get the deliberate plugging in of the guitar cable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, anyway, it's gone, and I'm thrilled. Hooray. Well, I'm still stuck an- getting those toots from people. It was an anomaly. I think it was a gravity anomaly. Mm. Uh, if, you, uh, if you know anything about gravity anomalies, you know that they can be used to communicate across time uh, by Matthew McConaughey. Is that right? Oh, because of the flat circle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Time is a flat circle. You saw a Except- movie where he was a scientist. Is that correct? Oh, I'm so mad. <laughs> I'm so mad. I, you know, I was barely aware of Interstellar as it was happening, as it was when it was coming out, and I remember there being some talk. I think Neil deGrasse Tyson had some just a long string of tweets about the science in it, but I was just ignoring it all. Yeah. And then I was in a hotel room, and and uh, it was on the TV, and I watched it, and I was just oh, it's just. Just clenchingly mad the entire time. You know, I'm not. I'm not the. I'm probably the fifth best physicist that you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, give or take, right? Well, right. You, you might be the only physicist I know, <laughs> so I'm not in a position to say. There are. I think there are a lot of people that you and I know who it turns out are physicists. Hmm. Closeted we, physicist. Yeah, that we just don't know. Like I would, I would say Grant Balfour is probably a pretty good physicist. Yeah, he yeah, would, probably John, John Syracuse, Grant Balfour. John, we've we've got yeah. some physicist friends for sure. 
I would say that they would say that they probably weren't physicists. And that's I'm typical gonna, of a physicist. That's right, and I'm going to probably agree with them. And I'm not saying, I, I, you know what, I'm not the fifth best. I'm in the top five physicists right. that you Because right? of a gravity anomaly, that changes a lot. That's right. Gravity anomalies can often take one t- take a group of physicists and and resort them mm. and then do it again. Right? It's called lensing. Lensing, and that's that's part of the parallax effect. Is that what that's it's, called? Well, it's close. It's close. You're on. You're on to something. The, the doppelganger effect. That's where it sounds like mm. uh, the British sirens going by. Meaner, that's a, meaner. That's a that's a that's a whole different category. The doppelganger effect, uh-huh. uh, and it's actually pronounced doppelganger. <laughs> Derpel, doppelganger, doppelganger. <laughs> uh, that but, sounds like the name of a nerd in an '80s teen movie. Doppelganger. Da da. He has a little guitar thing that happens when he comes in. Da da. It's doppelganger. Um, uh, but I don't want to talk about physics. A lot of poetics. Yeah, I, do well, want, no, I actually do want to talk about physics. Well, it's but interesting I you should say that because uh, what I wrote down was overpronouncing. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to skip that, and now I'm going to willing suspension of disbelief, which I wrote down. Because isn't it interesting? It's super interesting to me. Like what I will willfully suspend my dis- disbelief about. Like, I, yeah, the thing is, here's my thesis, and I'm not a physicist like you, mm-hmm. but I, I can't. As I sit here today, I can't tell you what it is about a film or TV show or novel that makes me go sure. Right. And otherwise, makes you go. Mm. Right. I, it's really hard to say. All I know is I know that John Woo movies are not realistic, but I'm totally in. I know Edgar Wright movies are not realistic, but I'm totally in. I, How do you feel about it when uh, people are are um, performing karate? While standing on top of bamboo shoots, tall, you know, very tall. Yeah, bamboo we talked shoots. about this briefly once before. I don't have a problem with it um, mm-hmm. because I think if that's part of the the universe, the cinematic universe, mm-hmm. you know, it's just you know the the biggest problem. If I had to say one big thing, and I, I don't have any specific examples of this in mind, but I know this happens a lot. In a lot of movies, in particular, the first act sets up. It's a lot of world building. And yes. the, first, the first act does a lot of establishing the ironclad rules that will lead to much of the drama that unfolds over the next two hours and 30 minutes. I really like the way you're saying this. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And then stuff happens in the second act. Right. Stuff happens. That's and right. And then virtually every rule, ironclad rule that was established in the first third kind of gets thrown out the window without explanation. And that's frustrating. And I feel cheated and I feel duped. Well, in this case, in this in this movie, the, um, Inter- the Interstellar. I've already, I've, oh, Interstellar, right? In this Interstellar movie, the first act is the problematic act hmm. because the first act is both boring. Well, it's boring and implausible, but also dumb, poorly thought out, mm-hmm, and, it, mm-hmm. and it sets up the plot for the rest of the film. Like this, the 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 stuff happens part of the movie where the spaceships are going and people are spinning around and space is very quiet. Mm. And um. And uh, Kira Knightley, or whoever the the female lead is, it's not Kira Knightley. It's um, it's um, some uh, it's an un actress. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Actually, actually, an actress that I have danced with. Huh? Can at, you remember her name? At a wedding, mm-hmm. I was at a wedding. She was there. Uh, and I thought to myself, I'm going to ask her to dance. Mm-hmm. And then it was more of sort of more of a, a group dance. You know what I mean? Like it was sort of like I'm going to ask her to dance. I think a lot like, of modern gals will gonna, are going to want to start out with a with a friendly group dance. Yeah. So it was like five of us kind of group dancing, and it turned it's not out like that, you just got back from Bastogne. 
I mean, you're going to have to really earn it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you don't just grab somebody and kiss them in Times Square anymore. You kind of have a group dance. There was a group dance, and there was, and that, that I was actually that was the moment that I realized that uh, even famous actors are first thespians. Mm. Right, right. This was a, this was kind of a this was a moment for me because you, you have a you have a, a sense of um, famous actors that they are very. Movie, they're Act, movie stars. They're movie stars. They're mm-hmm. actorly. Uh, they're in, in a different category. But of course, they're they're not. They started out as thespians, as high school thespians. Yeah. And then they became college thespians, and then they became uh, movie stars. But they are still in their heart uh, thespianic. Mm. And so uh, <laughs> we we were doing this uh, this this group dance, and there was so much thespianic uh, hand and face and body work. Um, that by the, like in real time, people were out there jazz handing around. It was really happening, and there was just a lot of like, uh, everybody's looking at us. Wee! Mm. And I was already too uh, old mm-hmm. and grouchy to to really enjoy it. I was enjoying it more from a standpoint of like, Haha, I'm watching this. But I, but I walked away feeling like, oh right, I bet you. I bet you even Harrison Ford is like this, right? I mean, when you get him like when you get him at a wedding, you think so? He's probably like, bah! I don't know. Where, where, is it? Is it? I'm trying to get get this right. So there's a drama to it. There's definitely an element of performance. They're dancing like people are watching. Yeah, you remember? You remember being in high school? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I do you remember vaguely? Yeah, you, you remember the people that were in theater? Mm-hmm. And how they were. Yeah, I was a little bit in theater, but I definitely know what you mean. Yeah. And, um, and that, that, that thing. That thing. And, and so, yeah, even back then, a lot of dancing in a big circle and then mm-hmm. uh, kind of suggesting a gesture that everybody could, could do together. Yep. It's, it's sort of like a goth conga line. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Mm. I mean, anyway, <laughs> su- suffice to say that I know this actress. And I don't remember her name because yeah. I have a very hard time with She's those. probably on that community show. Nope. Nope. No, I think she's a more famous actor than that. Wow. She was in some movies. You, I, you know I, what? It'll, 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 it'll come to you. In any case, she was there. Matthew McConaughey was there. Neither one of them did I for a moment believe was a scientist. But that didn't matter during the space part because who knows who they're going to put in space, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like... Uh, 50 years from now, who knows who the astronauts are going to be? Like, I didn't buy that Ethan Hawke could get into the spaceship with his bad eyes mm. in uh, in the other space I get movie. What you're t- I get what you're saying, though. You know I, mean? I mean, things can be kind of... It used to be you had to be uh, an engineer and a pilot, and you had to be at NASA. Yeah. And someday there could be app developers. We yeah, don't know. It, that's right. That's exactly right. It could be Elon Musk uh, with the with leather... Uh, a biplane pilot's helmet on mm-hmm. in the front of the spaceship that he designed to actually look like his own face, uh, sp- uh, you know, shooting up into space, um, the biggest penis of all. Yeah. So I, that part I didn't have a problem with, but the part, the, the, but the part that it was establishing like the, the, that, <laughs> the, that feel free to, feel free to spoil it for me. No, no, no. Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway. You danced with Anne Hathaway? In a group. 
Hmm. A small group, five people, Man. dancing around. At the time, I was like, you know, I was entertaining the idea that maybe our eyes would lock across a crowded dance floor. Mm-hmm. Um, but looking back at photographs of myself at the time, I was missing a tooth, and I did have, like, hair down to the middle of my back. Mm-hmm. And Is this contemporaneous with that uh, video series on the YouTube of you? The 13 it's, Songs with John Yeah, series? you had some real long hair. Yeah, really long hair. It got even longer, and I think at this wedding, it was as long as it was going to get, and uh, so... I can only imagine, I mean, I'm talking about Anne Hathaway's um, artistic uh, thespianic dancing, Mm -hmm. but I can only imagine what she was seeing looking back across the circle. Maybe that's why the group dance, Mm -hmm. right? Safety in numbers. A little bit of that, a little bit of like, huh, this is interesting. How did this guy get in here? I'm going to stay away from the biker. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I don't blame her. And I've seen her in some movies where I thought she was great. And she was actually, uh, well, no, she wasn't very good in this movie. But that's not the point. The point is science as a, uh, as a narrative m- motivator, right? If you, if you go to a movie and you're like, science is going to motivate this movie. There is going to be, somebody's going to use science to tell a story. It's going to turn on science. And I and, and, and I've since I've since watching the film I have looked it up and I've read all the talk about like oh the science is really good in this movie they made mm-hmm. sure that the science yeah didn't was, he like call people in and, and yeah, had yeah consultants and people it's just there yeah that was that and so the science like the black hole that appears in the movie looks like a black hole is going to look if you ever see a black hole apparently hmm. right and so I don't object to that. Mm-hmm. But the but the part where the dad, out of love for his daughter, goes into the black hole to communicate with her by knocking books off of the shelf in her bedroom in the past hmm. was not... <laughs> Is that what not, happened? Not a thing that... Um, I don't think that you... I don't... I, I'm not complaining about the science necessarily. John, do you feel like they'd worked out a system where she would know to <laughs> to watch out for falling books? This is the thing. Yeah. She, you know, the movie starts. She's in her bedroom. Books are falling off the shelves. Hmm. hmm. I wonder if that's going to play into the film. I would be thinking more, more poltergeist at that point. Right? I mean, sure. A- anyone would. Unless your father was a science farmer. <laughs> unless he was... <laughs> A, retire- a gentleman farmer who used to be a scientist? Is that what yeah, it is? I'm saying jet pilot, retired jet pilot science farmer. And he says, books are falling off your ship. There's no such thing as ghosts. This, this is like the first hour of the movie where you're like, wasn't oh. there supposed to be some space in this movie? No, no, no. We're talking about the books falling off the shelves and some other stuff. None of it interesting. Oh, I see. I see. So the books falling off the shelf that he's trying to explain away, or actually later on turns out, caused by him oh, with, with the, his space in forming. The future, mm-hmm. m- manipulating the past through a mm. multiple universes scenario. Is this multiple the controversial u- ending, John? Or is there a more controversial ending after this ending? Uh, I think if there was, if there were people that had that were creating a controversy about this film, about some element in it. I dismiss them with a with a with a 
scoff hmm. because the controversy about this film is that it is a garbage barge. I I knew it was divisive. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a the film is a garbage barge starring <laughs> the ultimate like over tanned tanned leather captain of garbage barge Matthew McConaughey. And he recruited this poor Kira Knightley person, um, uh, Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway, <laughs> to uh, she plays someone called Brand. Yeah, she does some very she does some very bad acting mm-hmm. in it, and uh, there are some other uh, there are some other actors in it that do fine fine acting jobs, but the entire thing is a garbage barge, and it's and and, and I and I cannot help but compare it to the to the more recent film. Which used science to create a robot raccoon that had a smart mouth mm-hmm. and a and a big machine gun. Yep, shouldn't and, work. And think everything in that movie I believed. Yep, one hundred percent and loved. And this garbage barge of a movie, which was supposed to be smart, and which multiple multiple film reviewers praised for its smartness. People were. This is why I say divisive because I, I haven't seen the film, but I heard a lot of people were just coming out of the theater freaking out and talking about how their life had changed. And other people were like, "Did we watch the same movie?" Mm. Mm. I, you know, I learned this. I'll probably get this wrong. I'm doing this from memory, but I learned a couple distinctions in the last few years that I think are interesting. And you probably know these, but won't admit it. You know, like in genres, the two, like you got science fiction, you got fantasy, right? Now, oh, fantasy. I know, I, I know, I know, I know the difference between those. Okay, okay, that's a start. That's mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings is fantasy. Fantasy. Well, no, here's the thing. But in fantasy, don't you have like there's like high fantasy and like low fantasy. High fantasy is where it really it's like a whole different world, oh. like a different universe or something like that. And forgive me, everybody in the world who's going to get mad at this. But the, the, the distinction being, there's, there's a certain high kind. fantasy. Well, but then also, I do know there's hard science fiction. Oh, okay, yeah. right. So there's a kind of science fiction where every conceivable detail is sweated to be as accurate as possible, but also even in a speculative fiction universe to really cater to the sort of person who like, you know, asked the question of uh, William Shatner at the convention. Like, the, yeah. you know, isn't that a distinction? Because then there's some kinds of science fiction where you got a uh, fucking ro- robot raccoon and nobody minds. Right. And this is the, and this is the thing. I love hard science fiction. And generally I find that it works best when it is like Blade Runner, a plausible world where, where you, you have, you've posited the future based on like one or two, one or two minor changes and it has produced this future world, right? I mean, or, or it, like you take a lot of elements that we all sort of accept and know to be true and you introduce one fantastical science development. Okay. And I can handle I can handle those even the ones that are like hard science except fantasy right like the um, like ones where time travel is possible or something like that where where they don't they don't take or what was the one where the guy was coming back into the they were uh, people in the future were sending people back in the past to get killed oh yeah the uh, <clears throat> not Inception but uh, uh, Looper Looper right I mean as if you sit and worry about Time travel, like don't talk about time travel, mm-hmm. and they and they covered it right in the film, and it's hilarious that moment. Right, and you're just like, okay, I accept that, and then you then you go along with the plot, right? And what what this movie did was that it tried to get the hard science right, except there there nobody had done any thinking about uh, 
about like the human element, right? They had they had they'd gone toward the hard science and they had forgotten they to They forgot make, about people, John. They forgot about people. They forgot mm. to make the human motivation plausible. Like a whole, the the whole uh the whole emotional core of this film uh depends on the idea that a daughter, a, a father who is a who is a, a space farmer, a cap, a, a science farmer, gets an opportunity to go into space, mm-hmm. and his ten-year-old daughter says, How, "Don't leave," and he says, "I must go into space. I am a I am a space farmer." This is what science farmers do. We go. This into is what space. science farmers do. They go into space, right? So that's the that that is the that is a, a thing from uh from basically every novel, every movie. The the father says goodbye, daughter. I am called out to the. I'm I'm riding out into the west. I am blasting off into space, and I will I will be back, or I will bring you. And he's either saying it to his daughter or his wife or you know somebody. But in this film, the daughter is so betrayed by the fact that her father would blast off into space, even though she is herself a science. She is a science farmer herself. She becomes a science farmer. Is that right? It runs in the family. It's a, it's a family science farm. Right. But despite being a science farmer, she cannot ever forgive him for this decision to go into space nominally to save humanity. And the whole film, is it, 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 all the drama in it is about, the, about, the, uh, about Matthew McConaughey being primarily motivated to get back to Earth to his daughter mm-hmm. and she still even as an adult devastated obviously never been in love obviously never like fallen off her bike the worst thing that ever happened to her and the only thing that ever happened to her is that her father left and like she doesn't forgive him for it and he doesn't and he can't say like a, 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 a space farmer's got to do what a space farmer's got to do like there's no but he doesn't have like a science phone to keep in touch so he's got to throw books well, this is the thing. Mm. No, what happens is they get down close to the gravity of the black hole and time moves more slowly for him. Oh, dear. And I like this part. This, mm-hmm. is, this is interesting science, right? This is the part of the movie that I wanted to watch all day, which is like an hour on this planet is seven years back home. And so he's like, well, wait a minute, I can't spend, uh, you know, like they, they got down on the planet and their fucking engine flooded or whatever. Like, <laughs> come on, we got to start the fucking ship. I got to get back. That's another year that just went by. <laughs> and by the time they get out of the black hole, uh, uh, everybody on Earth is grown up. Oh, gosh. And it's like, that is one of the great, that's a great idea, right? That's a great plot point. Mm-hmm. That's a great thing. And, and for, also the, opens the door to a lot of humanity and storytelling, for sure. Right, right. For, fantastic. And the, and the one, you know, and, and what your mind wants to do is like, they, they, they can't get their motor started. And by the time they do, they come back out of the black hole gravity field and Earth is 400 years in the future, right? Oh, That's what's interesting. Yeah. That would be an interesting story. But instead, like, they get off the planet and, like, his daughter's grown up and she's spent the last 40 years, like, sucking her thumb while becoming a genius scientist, but sucking her thumb because her dad didn't come back. Mm-hmm. And it's like, seriously? Dads don't come back all the time. Dads go out for a pack of cigarettes and don't come back. Like, if every kid in the world whose dad didn't come back sucked their thumb and became a genius physicist, well, we'd have a better space program. But it sounds like the story needs her to feel that way 
in order for the and again, I have not seen the movie, but in order for the drama from uh, the, uh, the McConaughey guy to work, right, has to be that feeling from her. And this is my objection: the mm-hmm. the movie needs her to behave in a way that is not not human, right? Hmm. And needs him to behave like whatever whatever their bond is. Like people have those bonds, but but anybody anybody with normal human feelings watches that and says, you know what, my dad. I'm ten years old or I'm twelve years old. I love science. My dad is a spaceship captain. He's gonna go, and I'm I'm gonna be sad. But like we're all gonna we're gonna get on with our lives, right? Mm-hmm. That's the nor- That is what a, any human would do that isn't like emotionally broken. I'm confused. I, I thought it was the science that threw you off. No, I liked the science. It was it the was, relationships, the people part. Well, so so then so so this is so the, this is the problem, right? He is in. He has access somehow to a to some sort of crossroads place created by future humans for reasons that are not explained. He is in a crossroads where he can go from he can go across multiple universes. He can go across time, I guess. Right? He's in a he's in a he ends up in this black hole in a room, sort of a la two thousand one a space odyssey, where he can go across time and he is using that incredible power not to kill Hitler, not to go back to a time before he was born and give his parents a, uh, a riddle, right, that only he can solve. Not, not, uh, not to do anything interesting mm-hmm. except to communicate to his daughter by knocking books off of her shelves in the past. Two contradictory messages. One, because the, the, the gravity field... This is so boring. The gravity field... <laughs> The gravity field and the and all of that is how he and his daughter found the NASA people in the first place. So he must have done that. He must have signaled to her to go find the space people, which is what produced the situation where he flew into space, right? So he sent that message and then spends a lot of time knocking books off the shelves in a coded order so that she receives the message, stay Mm. And the message stay is meant to be communicated to him in the past through his daughter, telling him not to go. They took it and they turned it. But if he didn't go, Uh. then none of the... It's just like the writing... Did he actually stay? No, he didn't stay because that's idiotic if he had stayed... Then he wouldn't have been knocking. No, I know. Up, I know. Right? Well, that's you know the Hitler I mean? problem. That's the kill Hitler problem. But they didn't even address if that. If we killed Hitler, we wouldn't know who Hitler is today. They didn't address the fact that in an infinite number of other possible multiple multiverses, he did stay. Right? They're, they didn't address any of that. They're using all of that interesting physics and crazy, like, you know, Einsteinian, like, brain fuckery to tell the dumbest dumb story featuring two dummies that you don't care about in the first place like if if you do care about their relationship if you do care about this father and daughter you are a dummy because they are such dummies (laughs) and all of the physics becomes this like that it becomes like all this window dressing Mm -hmm. on a on a on a story on, on a pretty pedestrian 
on a pedestrian and, and sentimental story. Numb nuts sentimental story. Like if you took the science out of that movie and it was just like, here's the story. Here are the people that you're going to end up caring about. There's his father, the daughter, some other people. And like, do you care about their lives? Do you care about whether they succeed in their quest? Do you care if they are reunited? Do you care about any of that? And the answer is no, you couldn't possibly. Mm. Because, and ultimately this is, this is, I think, the key that Hollywood, this is the message that Hollywood needs to receive. You cannot care about Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> you can't. You can watch him. You can be interested in his oh, actions. Oh, come on. No, no, no. You can be interested in him. He can walk across the stage and you can be like, uh-huh. You're saying because he can't be trusted? No, because you cannot care about him. Think about this. Mm. Look at his face. Think about his role. This is now we're into some hard science fiction. Think about is it. You, is it possible to actually care about Matthew McConaughey? Yeah. Could you write a film where Matthew McConaughey was the actor playing any part? I challenge you, any part. And you are watching him and looking into his face and his eyes, and you care about what, what happens. What about the uh, the Dallas Buyers Club? Did you care about him? Uh, I didn't finish it. Right. Well, there were people in that movie that you cared about. It seemed like a good movie. It was a very interesting movie, and it was an actorly experience mm-hmm. where you watched these actors really, really act the shit out of what they were doing. I thought he was the, the, the first part, which I watched, uh, and that, nothing against the, the second uh, two parts, but uh, he, he seemed to really inhabit the role. I, I really bought him as a, as a scroungy, uh, squirrely, uh, druggy guy. He absolutely did, and a guy that you enjoyed watching but did not personally care about. No, and, and a good role for Matthew McConaughey. Fantastic role. And then at the end, what you care about is the tens, the hundreds of thousands of people who are suffering from AIDS that this particular guy, his actions ended up helping them, right? You Mm -hmm. cared about the people. That Starts out as Barfly, turns into Gandhi. Turns into Gandhi, right. You You cared about the people, but he, you did not care about. And... Hmm. I cannot hmm. I cannot think of a single and the, you know what my objection to Matthew McConaughey started in a science fiction role which was do you remember do you know Ooh, I dazed and confused no Matt see Matthew McConaughey was great in dazed and confused and in fact that may be the one example where I actually kind of did no I didn't care about <laughs> it but I sure liked him no what movie Matthew McConaughey and I could have gone through life perfectly fine with each other Right, he's on one path. I'm on another. He's playing. He's playing uh, most of the roles that he plays, and I am enjoying watching him, but yep. not caring about him. But in that goddamn Jodie Foster movie where she built a space machine mm. based on a Carl Sagan. Oh, doesn't short she? Story. Is that she goes and meets her father? She goes and meets well. In space. She meets, she meets the aliens who have masqueraded as her father because they because she wouldn't be able to grok. Spoiler alert. <laughs> She wouldn't be able to grok what they looked like. Oh, I see. Or, she the, would, or, or yeah. not, their, not the, just their looks, but their whole form. Right? Okay, would, I, I get it. So they could appear to her. They could have appeared to her as a swarm of bees. Coke machine. They could have appeared as a talking Coke machine. Belt buckle. But instead, they chose to appear to her as her, as her father, which is a fucked up thing for an alien consciousness to do, I can't I think. believe that's even allowed in the alien ethics. If they know enough to impersonate somebody's dad, they shouldn't be allowed to do it. Right, and if I, I don't were, want to be pedantic, but I, I I just gotta draw a line in the space. <laughs> exactly. If I were a Jodie Foster space scientist, mm-hmm. and I got out into into like a, a a space world, and my dead father arrived and started talking to me in like, I would feel 
uh, talking to me in his like uh, in his fatherly way. John, it's definitely uh, me. <laughs> I would feel very manipulated by these <clears throat> UFOs. I would in, in, I would instantly not trust them. I would want to. I would definitely want to talk to somebody else. Yeah. Right. Like. Okay. All right. I've seen what you can do. It's a nice parlor trick. Can yeah. you appear to me as Richard Nixon now? Right. Can- that could that could have been somebody who was new there. And they were abusing the technology, and we're not fully aware. You know what I mean? Maybe that was maybe that was a new alien on the job. But that's the thing. Are, really, are, are they contacting so many in, uh, sentient races around the around the universe that they're that this is something that they've assigned to an intern? Well, what about Clarence the Angel? And uh, it's a wonderful life. I mean, you got to start somewhere. Yeah, I've never seen it's a wonderful life. I know. I've seen that. I've seen I, that. It's uh, it's got some uh, multiverse time travel in it. Anyway, in this movie. With Jodie Foster, yeah, where the where the swarm of bees is appearing to her as her father, Matthew McConaughey plays a role uh, where he is some kind of spiritual leader. Hmm. Yeah, this is again a fantasy future world where he is a how would you describe him? A young Billy Graham who has a lot of moral authority. He's a char- charismatic spiritual figure. Charismatic spiritual figure. That's exactly right. Like a young Billy Graham. A young Billy Graham, but with a lot of, like, a deep soul wisdom <laughs> so that he is... <laughs> I, can, I can imagine that. Right? So yeah. that he, but, but, I can imagine but, him playing that. But such that he is um, consulted by presidents and heads of state. Like a young Billy Graham. Like a young Billy Graham. And he, like, gets him... He's on one of these advisory boards. He's a central figure... He is the voice of he is the voice of faith and religion in this science movie. And he is and he, so I'm watching this movie and I'm like I like Jodie Foster, mm-hmm. I like Carl Sagan. I like the idea of a science uh movie. I love the idea. Now this is going to be a terrible spoiler alert if you haven't seen this movie. I love the idea that you that that space travel is basically time travel. And the and the and the whole spaceship design is just that uh, that we on Earth perceive it to be like that she just fell through a hole and came out the other side. It's but just she, a cocoon that protects you from time for a while. Yeah, she was gone. She was gone for a long time in her world, and in our world, it appeared that the machine didn't work, and nobody believed that she went. Oh, because of blink of the eye. Blink of the eye. Ah. That's right. So good. That's such a nice. That's nice. Device. That's a nice touch. It's a nice device. Mm-hmm. A nice device. Although. Again, I feel like a panel of scientists would be able to understand this concept if she explained it to them. And, and nobody, when she got back, nobody believed her and she was disgraced. So what happens with, with McConaughey's character? Does he learn a lesson about love? Well, what so happens? What, that's exa- that is probably what happens. I don't, I, I was, every time, it? every time he came on the screen, I closed my eyes and I went, no, 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 because he's so callow, so like, so unbelievable in the role of somebody that anyone would care about that and and to put him as the like heart of the film like the like the emotional heart of the movie Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. was such a was such a terrible casting decision that's a lot of weight to carry for any actor but it sounds like you're saying he wasn't up to it see what you want in that role is a chubby guy (laughs) if somebody's going to be the emotional heart of a science movie oh like uh wayne knight seinfeld's newman Thank you. Mm-hmm. If you put a guy, if you put a guy with a, a little bit of a chunky guy mm-hmm. in the center of a role like that, now that's the thing you're going to believe 
that a chunky guy's got heart. <laughs> right? You're going to believe. You don't believe that a guy like Matthew McConaughey, who, who, who appears to be carved out of mahogany, mm-hmm. that guy's got no heart. You can mostly like you don't want to do stuff to your panties or maybe get into your bank account. Yeah. He, you know what he wants to do? He wants to make some fish tacos and he wants to go boogie boarding. <laughs> He's a pan man. That's what he wants. He yeah. does. He wants to go. He wants to have Sammy Hagar over. They're going to make some fish tacos. He's going to make his famous fucking salsa. And then they're going to go boogie. I heard it's pretty hot. He's not. <laughs> he does not want to be the, uh, be the uh, emotional heart of a, of a film. You don't believe it. Not for a second. Sounds like you, you, you consider it a stretch role for him. Anything where he so so in that in that TV show where he was playing uh, against uh, the guy from Cheers. Yeah, yeah, sure. That was he was very uh, convincing in that movie because he was a gacked out like bad cop, mm-hmm. and he was a, he was a, he's good at like druggy and laconic. Yeah, and he was a dumb philosopher in that movie with a lot of dumb philosophy. But it was exactly the kind of dumb philosophy that a gacked out cop would would spew, right? <laughs> He should be a consultant on these things. He was not the chubby guy that should have been at the center of both of these science fiction movies. Like Seinfeld's Wayne Knight. Well, you know, he's a doesn't little... have to be him, but maybe if he shaved his head, he might look wise. I would even buy Seth Rogen in those roles. I think he. Lo- I think just for what it's worth, also nothing. I don't mean to go on a chubby thing here. I think uh, I think Wayne Knight uh, lost a tremendous amount of weight. He had one of those uh, transformative weight loss experiences. Do you think that it was? A, do you think he got a lap belt? Oh, that's what the la- lapra laparoscopy uh, thing. Yeah, it could be, could be, or they give you the tiny tummy. I think uh, Jonah Hill also had a big uh, weight loss thing. Oh, I saw that, but he's, he seems to be gaining it. Back. It's hard. The yo-yo thing is real. You know, my mom believes that uh, that people who lose a lot of weight uh, by any method of exercise and and diet, she believes that those people will always tell you what they did. It, always. So that someone who loses a lot of weight suddenly, oh. who does not tell you in exhaustive detail the method by which they did it, invariably have had some kind of gastric bypass. Oh, you okay, not, not that there's anything wrong with that, but, no. but there's extraordinary medical surgical means involved. That's uh, she, a big commitment. That's she, a really big she commitment. believes she believes that that anyone who has used a system of like changing their diet and exercise is going to bore the shit out of you about it. It's almost like if you had a bunch of people sitting around, well, four people sitting around in the room, for of any gender, really. Uh, but anybody, and then like one person starts talking about their kids, another person starts talking about their kids, or they're talking about, let's talk about how their kid used to be adorable and is now mm-hmm. a dick. Mm-hmm. And then the second one comes in, third one comes in. Mm-hmm. There's a pretty good chance if you had a kid, well, let's be honest, they probably turned out to be a dick, you're going to jump into that conversation. The only people who don't jump into that conversation are somebody who doesn't have a kid, God bless them, and goes, and goes, Haha, that's really, it sounds like a pain, yeah, right? Same thing right. here. If you've done something, people are proud of what they've done, and, you know, and especially with the things like pregnancy or weight loss or uh, you know, AA or whatever. There right. are people who are going to give you, they've got their story. I try very hard not to talk about my diet, and I cannot help. Oh, I cannot oh. help but not uh, talk about it because as soon as somebody we're doing like, so many things, I swore to myself I would never, ever, ever do. Not that I feel that bad about it. That's the second part. That's the painful part. Is it yeah. doesn't bother me? It doesn't that bother I can actually me. Talk about my bowel movements and cassette tapes. Two years ago, when somebody was talking about how they were gluten free, I was like, "Oh my god, you're so boring. Stop it. Stop talking." And 
then when I went gluten free, I was like, well, you know, I went gluten free recently and blah, 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 blah. And I was so proud of myself. And I had completely forgotten, completely blocked out that I had formerly found uh, people like that boring. So anyway, that is the, that's, that's my mom's theory. But my mom has a lot of theories. You have to take them all with a grain of salt. Yeah, but in the aggregate, she's right a lot of the time. I don't have a I dog in so. this fight. I think she, I think she is. I think do do we ever talk about the, there's this one episode of This American Life called The Seven Things You're Not Supposed to Talk About? Do we, we talk, mm. Was that one here we talked about that? No, I think that might have been one, one of your other, other programs. programs. Yeah, but um, I, want, I want to find the the uh, – <laughs> it's basically the, – the notion of the show, it's kind of a silly idea, but the idea is Sarah Koenig, who went on to do ding, 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 cereal. Her mother, I believe it's her mother – is uh, has this this list of seven topics no one should ever talk about, uh-huh. and they are. <laughs> let me get this right. Your period. Uh, what? Your diet and what you eat. Okay. Your health in general. Yeah. Um. Yeah. This is. These are some tennis club rules. This okay. Here we go. Keep going. Waspy tennis clubs. I, I don't know. I'm just tossing these out. So wait, wait. Let's let's go back. We got pot. We got uh, we got your period. We got uh, diet. Uh, number four. We got sleep. Number five. Your dreams. Oh, don't talk about your dreams, but don't talk about sleep either, huh? Okay. Uh-huh. I'm just getting there. I love this one. Number six. I love number six. Root talk. What's that? How you got there. Oh. Oh, man. We were going to take 280, but then uh, it turned out there was uh, we had to take a uh, cut over and uh, go down the 101. Oh, you just took you just took away 80% of what my mom and I talk about. I know. Talk. Exactly. But, but you know, I think those are the... I'm just, I'm just saying that if we don't have these things to talk about... I'm not saying I agree with this, but that sounds like all stuff that, like, if we didn't have those things to talk about and how your kids eventually become dicks, there would be not much to talk about. If you don't talk... You know what? For me, diet and sleep. If I can right. talk about diet and sleep, what am I going to say at this point? <clears throat> when when someone is introduced into our family, you know, when somebody like gets to be friends with the uh, with the Rodericks, one of the one of the things that they have to sort of accustom themselves to is that any time my mom and I arrive at a place or depart, we're going to spend two minutes talking about the route. <laughs> Which way, you know, she's but like, you, okay, you I'm take, taking you off. Take and I the go, point a little bit, right? Which way are you going? And she goes, oh, oh well, yeah, I wouldn't on. have done that. That's and like, if and if we're both in one location and we're going to a separate location, we will absolutely take different routes and compare. And def- and we're very interested in who who gets to the place first. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it varies. I think it varies a great deal, especially as people get older, and you you can compare and contrast your different dietary problems. I'd also just like to say, if anybody out there don't have any producers, um. I would like to see a cable reality show called Getting to Be Friends with the Rodericks. <laughs> <laughs> it's very it's a, it would be a 10 season show and at the end maybe you would be friends. Well, it could be lots Eight. of things. It could be a contest. Uh oh. it could be an elimination thing. Right. It could be like a hidden camera, you know, Ozzy Osbourne kind of thing. Yeah, at the end of every episode, my mom and I would sit down and I'd be like, "I kind of like this one." And she'd be like, mm, "No. It would be nice if you left now." <laughs> Um, I went skiing this past weekend on a hill. I went skiing, uh, for the first time in a long, long time. Um, uh, probably, uh, well, the first time in many years I went skiing. And this used to, in your family, uh, this was a thing. Yeah. I mean, your well, sister's like a big time skier, right? Well, and I was too. Well, you were, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. You said that. Yeah. And uh, and it was really it was very it was very weird, uh, uh, Merlin. Um, because it's a thing that I haven't done, 
uh, in a lo- in a long time, and it, probably in the last twenty years, I've done three times. But it's a thing that I know how to do really well. Oh, you still have it? It's like a riding a bike, as they say. Oh yeah, because between the ages of eight and twenty three, I skied. Constantly, I I raced, I trained mostly in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Okay, it, but I was I skied in college too. But uh, but you know, in the summer, I trained. I would lay. We would we would go for a long run, and then we would lay down in the park, and our coach would walk around. We'd all be laying on the grass with our eyes closed, and our coach would walk around between us really slowly. This is on a beautiful summer summer day in, in Alaska, and he'd be like, "You're at the top of the course." And you're you're checking your bindings, and and then you hear the you hear the buzzer, bam, 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 and then you're then you're out, and you're on the course, and you're making that first turn, and you're just carving perfectly. Oh, visualizations. And, and we would sit and lay in the park while he would he would visualize an entire slalom race. Really, even back then. I mean, mm-hmm. I think of this as being a modern invention, but that you really did it back then. 1980. This was 84, probably. Whoa. Because don't, don't golfers do not to change the top? Don't golfers do that a lot? It's a big. They say like visualization is like ninety percent or something or forty percent or something. Yeah, percentage. I think it's a big sports thing, and I think I, I remember at the time uh, being told or feeling like this was really new and really innovative, and it was really effective. Like you would lay there after a long run, and you'd be like, you know, feeling your body, and the sun is beating down, and you're thinking about this ski race, and you're imagining yourself just skiing so well through this course. Mm-hmm. And I, I absolutely, the following year during ski season, like made a, a real leap in ability and had started to, and I was, I, I started winning races. I had, I got a couple of gold medals. That's and amazing. People were starting to talk about me. Like I was a comer. Um, it all ended, uh, badly, but, but it was a, it was a uh, it was a big big part of my teen life, and and it's and it's a thing I haven't done in years. So I so because it touches on athletics, it touches on um, like social stuff, right? Obviously, like people would it's like a, a thing people would do for fun. A thing people would do for fun. It's also a very expensive sport. So there's this other aspect of it where it ties into it's a it's a it's a very class. Mm-hmm. oriented thing like skiing is is like horse it's like horse people right you it's kind of like it is like golf in in that sense right i mm-hmm. mean where you've got there's lots of ongoing expenses there's lots of costly equipment you could take lessons forever mm-hmm. and and like a lot of things that are tied to social class there's the kind of confusing uh misattribution of like skill in skiing uh, a skill in skiing is is a sign that you are a superior person, kind of. You know, like skill in golf or 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 tennis or oh, horse riding yeah, yeah. is a sign that you are. I think one especially of the, if you make it, as they say, look easy. Right. That's like a very high status thing. It's, it's one thing to, to take a million classes and everybody know it, but like people who can who can golf or ski or boat uh, with apparent ease, I think that's super high status. Yeah, it's, it's there's a lot of status involved, but also. For me, like to be up on the ski mountain, because it's also a solitary sport. 
But it's a solitary sport where as you're making a run, you are conscious of being visible to people. There are people standing all around the ski hill watching you ski. There are people up on the lift watching you ski. Like there, it's, it, it is, it's a solitary performance of a kind of ballet. If you're skiing well, uh, because when I'm riding the lift or standing on the side of the hill and someone skis by and is skiing well, I will stop, stop what I'm thinking and watch them and admire them. Hmm. It's a, they're, they're every day in the course of, of being on a ski mountain, there are multiple times where you see somebody and you just admire their skiing and it's a form of love. You're, you know, I, I, and I, I don't feel that in very many other things as much as I do watching somebody do, watching somebody perform a sport that I know what it feels like to do well. Mm-hmm. And as I watch them do it well, I don't know them. I don't know anything about them, but I'm watching them ski well, and I think, I like this. I like watching this. And so when you're skiing, you're also aware that like 90% of the people around on the ski mountain are not watching you and don't care uh, and, don't, and wouldn't recognize that you were doing it well. But there's this small percentage of people on the lift or on, on the hill that you know, that you're aware of are going to recognize that you are performing at a higher level and they're going to appreciate it. Well, one way that it seems a little bit like skateboarding even before there was snowboarding, right? I mean, <clears throat> in that sense of that, you, you would sit there and you practice and you do this thing all day long over and over and over. And when you see somebody who's really capable at something you know is extremely difficult, you kind of can't help but stop to admire them. That's right. That's right. And, and a lot of things like, I mean, <clears throat> millions of people love watching basketball highlights because there are these feats of incredible athleticism that we all recognize as tremendous, right? But very few of us can also play basketball that well. And imagine watching basketball highlights if you were somebody who was an incredible basketball player. I get it. That, that's, a, that's a great distinction. It's, you, can, you can appreciate just based on the history of it, but you've never actually – you know, sunk a three pointer. Yeah, or way. or like jumped up and th- around the back, or you know, jumped over somebody's head and and dunked a basketball. And so I I was having this incredible experience all weekend where I was like, it's this is one of the few things that I am genuinely good at. And there are very few of those things, right? I do not consider myself to be genuinely good at playing guitar. I am, I'm good at guitar, I'm passable at guitar, but in a room full of people that are great at guitar, you know, nobody's going to be like, now let's lull, sit and watch Roderick, right? I'm going to kind of smile and make a joke and play a joke solo. I've heard but, you say that a lot of, a lot of time in a lot of places um, that you feel like you didn't even get, you always say two things, um, that you never, you never really got bothered to try and get good at guitar until you were in your like late 20s and even then you're just as good as you needed to be to do what you wanted to do you never saw it as this avocation to aspire to greater and greater rock yeah something like that yeah and 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 part of it maybe is that uh that skiing is something that i started to do when i was 10 or or i'm sorry eight and i didn't start playing guitar when i was eight and i didn't start really i didn't really do much else at eight uh like I didn't get good at baseball. I didn't. I wasn't good at Dungeons and Dragons. I, I wasn't good at uh, all those things that I wanted to do. I I, I didn't practice drawing. I didn't. I didn't 
get the this I didn't develop a skill to this to the degree that it was unconscious. But with skiing, after not having been in ten years, hmm. I get up on a pair, you know, I go into the pro shop and I'm like, look, I'm a forty six year old guy, but and I haven't been skiing in ten years, but I'm gonna want your best gear. And they're like Okay, and they bring out the they bring out this gear and they put it out there and I'm like, Yeah, no, not not this stuff. I want that stuff, you know, and I point up to the thing and they're like, Okay, man. And they put me in this stuff and I get up on the hill and I'm as I'm riding the ski lift, I'm like, you know, this is pretty technical gear. Like I hope that I'm not I hope I didn't overestimate my need for it. <laughs> you know, I hope I don't get up there and, and skiing has changed so much. And this gear is so, uh, radical that I'm going to be, uh, that you I'm said, not you said about, about 10 years since I went last. And right, had, right. Right. And that was the first time I'd gone in five years and I went one day and then there was, I went one day five years before that. I would I, not be surprised if that equipment's really better. Uh, it's changed a lot, but the art of skiing hasn't changed. Hmm. And I got off the lift and I made a couple of turns and I was like, oh, right, this is the appropriate gear. And I understand how it works. And then the rest of the day, I was just in this place of, uh, in this place of like tr- kind of training again, where every turn I made, I was thinking about and I was like, that was a good turn, and now we're going to set up the next turn, and here we go. And but then, like from a this- cardiovascular standpoint, you could do it it seems very athletic well and so i was after the first couple of runs i was super tired my legs hurt everything about me hurt Mm -hmm. and and i recognized a few things that i was 46 and so i could not i could not get air anymore i was not going to get i was not going to go off any jumps probably ever again and there were you know in any kind of skiing uh, in any ski run where you're really pushing yourself, you're, you're going to arrive at a moment where you're like, okay, I'm at the threshold now, right? I'm on the, I'm on the outside of my ability. And I think that's true of anybody, no matter how good they are, if they're pushing their envelope, they get to the edge of it. It, it, it seems like I've only I only skied once when I was a kid, uh, very young kid. But like w- the way you watching somebody do it and the way you describe it, it really sounds like not only is that true that you're always pushing it, but that you, the need to push that in a way you might not expect could come up at like almost any second, and that could be something of needing a certain amount of velocity you didn't expect. Mm-hmm. I certainly imagine when you talk about things like even small just jumping around how hard that must be on your joints but then also just any like one false move and you're just going to tear some part of your body really really hard right yeah you're going super fast down a place and even if you are very familiar with the terrain which like the resort i grew up on i knew every inch of it but even so every day is different right because it's nature and the weather and the snow, I mean, it's always different. So an area that you know really well, you can come across it and it's, then this, the, the situation has changed completely. But as it was happening this past weekend, I was on completely unfamiliar terrain. And every time I came over a rise, I had no idea what was on the other side. It could be a, it could be a mile long groomed, uh, run or it could be a cliff into a waterfall. Every mm-hmm. time, you know, every time you come over a, a, a horizon. And so, the other thing, I, uh, being 46, 
really pointed out to me was that I needed to, I needed to bring my the the edge of my envelope in considerably because the really the last time I skied very much at all, I was still young enough that the that the my boundaries were way way out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I needed to bring those way in. And there were a couple of times on the hill where I was standing on the edge of some double black diamond run and looking down and like, is this doable? Yes. Should I do it? No, I should not. I should not do this. Because I can do it, but I don't need to prove that. And I, and the risk of of doing this and and making even just a normal error is that I will hurt myself and then then today will be characterized by my injury rather than by the fact that I'm having a really fun time. Yeah. And so that was that was new to me. I'd never I had never stood at the top of a run before and looked down and said, "Can I? Yes. Should I? No." And I did that a few times and I was I was pretty proud of that. I think that's pretty smart, John. <laughs> I but mean, you know, as good as you may still be, like it's just the stakes are higher. Oh, I'm I'm old. I mean, yeah. I, you know, and and what, what was great was feeling like feeling after a couple of runs that I was so tired that maybe I had made a terrible mistake in buying an all day pass. Maybe I should go down and take a bath, <laughs> and uh, and then skiing through that pain and loosening up and getting my. You know, and and finding reserves of strength, and by the end, you know, and then I skied until the last run, and was was sad to sad that they didn't have night skiing, you know. But it was very weird to feel like this was a thing that I that I I know how to do, and that I that I, that is such a big part of my life, really, and I have chosen not to do it for twenty years for reasons that are all about. Well, it's really expensive, and it's kind of a pain in the ass to get up there. So anyway, it's better. You know what? I I'm going to go to the cafe this morning and read the newspaper instead. And every day, sort of making that decision for 20 years, and and leaving this side of me where I actually know how to do something that's really gratifying, that's physical, and that's in this other realm. And I just, I just don't. It's not a part of my life. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was, I, I'm still kind of like grappling with it. Um, grappling with how it, how it, how it is that I could go so that I could go year after year and not even want to do it once or want to do it, but never have that desire to do it be enough to like overcome the inertia of, of uh, sitting around. Well, I mean, doesn't the question kind of sort of answer itself, which was that you just, you hadn't, having not done it so long, I guess the question in some ways is like, when do you start to not do something? When does it start to count as you're not doing something? Because then once you did it, you were like, oh, this is great. Uh-huh. But like it used to be a huge part of your life, so it seems strange that you didn't at least kind of check back in with it. Well, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, but I, but it's sort of related to, you know, it's related to my... Well, it's a relationship to action, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I talk about this a lot. I'll be on the freeway and a guy will drive by me in a truck and he's pulling a trailer and it's got two snowmobiles and two dirt bikes and, and, and a boat, 
all on the same trailer, right? And he's pulling this thing up into the Siskiyou's, and you just know that this guy is, and he's, he's, his whole family's in the truck, and he's got a cabin up there somewhere, and he lives for this. Mm-hmm. He's, he, works for his, he works at his job, but he's always thinking about getting up to the lake. And, you know, my dad was like that with his freaking airplane, his goddamn fucking 182, and he just poured money into it, and he, every time the sun came out, he's down at the airport monkeying with his airplane and you know every spare minute he's like let's go let's let's get a hamburger up in Talkeetna let's fly up to Nanilchik <laughs> and and then you're you know and then and he would get, we'd get in the plane and he'd have his sunglasses on he'd have his reading glasses on top of his head cuz he needed them to wear to look at maps and then he had a third pair of glasses on top of that to see long distance he had like three pairs of glasses on at all times when he's in his plane. And we're, <laughs> when we're puttering along and I'm looking out the window and I'm like, you know, this is, a th- and this is another thing I was raised doing, right? If, if you put me behind the, if you put me in a 182 and said, fly me somewhere, I could, I'd do it without thinking. But it has never, it never has interested me to have a, have a, a jet ski or a, a lake cabin or a, or a small plane because I have a different kind of relationship to action. I don't care about action in a, in a, in a way, in a way. Hmm. I mean, do you, do you care about action? Uh, I'm not sure if I understand the question. I, I don't think, <clears throat> how do you mean? I mean, and what's that have to do with the guy with the jet skis? I mean, the guy with the jet skis is making such a personal investment. Right, right. right. He's such, he's so, it's co- so costly to have that fun. And that's what it always seems like to me. Like it seems like the, it's a cost-benefit analysis, I guess. Oh, yeah, sure. And especially when you take into account the time. The time and the, and the getting up early and the, just the gasoline. I think um, everybody has uh, such interesting differences in what they gravitate towards in terms of what you could very loosely call a hobby. Yeah. Um, because there are so many, the way I look at it anyway, and, and every anecdote you've just talked about in passing or in person uh, reflects the many vectors to that. Because mm. you have things like, should this be a largely practical thing? Or do I kind of like the fact that it's um, frivolous, if or if you like, or if it's something something that is you know doesn't have a practical purpose. Some people like making furniture because then they can make beautiful furniture and give it away. You know, some people like the fact that they're building something on a Minecraft server that's just for fun. Uh, is it something <clears throat> where I really uh, let me put it this way? How much d- does doing this? Expose me to other people and how do I feel about that? Because I really think a big part, especially historically men's hobbies, is there's the one kind where you hang out with other people and there's the other kind where you kind of have to be left alone. Mm-hmm. I think those mm-hmm. factor into it. Um, right. And I mean, I can go on. There's, there's things like – I think there is an element – I don't know. Not in the people that I like, I hope this isn't always an element, but there is the element then of conspicuous consumption. Like, do I want to have uh, three boats or do I mm-hmm. want to have, in that guy's case, he's, he's a little overtransported in terms of the number of things he has. But, <laughs> and then there's, then there's just stuff like in my family, I think about how much the men love, uh, and my uncle, uh, my late uncle and my late father, me, uh, just so many people. And, and I don't mean to just talk about men, but I think that's, that's kind of the direction of what you're talking about here. Um, enjoy the paraphernalia of the hobby. 
which mm. could be stuff like reading magazines. It could be things like um, going to the bike shop uh, to look at wrenches or whatever. Mm-hmm, 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 and mm-hmm. then you get into stuff like, I guess this is kind of the the social thing, but shop talk, like getting the chance to go fly out to the guy who fixes your dad's plane and shoot the mm-hmm, shit with him. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I think uh, every one of those is is so different. And it could be something like, could be me reading a comic book by myself at midnight. Or it could be you, you know, arranging a ski trip that's Mm -hmm. more money than you would normally pay. And like what makes somebody find that attractive, let alone relaxing, is is so different. Like the idea of going skiing to me is not appealing, not saying it's bad, but like that's very much not something that I would go out of my way to do. Because it, it doesn't no, tick my it doesn't tick my boxes. It has no practical application. Well, even still, there's I like, a, but I guess I'm just trying to say that all these things, men, women, uh, children, whoever, um, it, there's something that fills a little part of your personality. What, the nice thing about a hobby, if you want to call it that, is it's kind of like this spray spray foam insulation you can shoot into your life that fills this important part that mm-hmm. needs to be filled. Mm-hmm. And for some people, that's the social social part. For other people, it's like I just need to be left alone for two hours a week, mowing the lawn. Great chance to listen to podcasts and not talk to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as I, was I don't know if that in. responds really to what you were saying, but I yeah, think that part partly explains you had a lot of your social intercourse coming from rock and roll for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to say there's like a one to one explanation, but like, I think it's actually sadly easy to understand why we fall out of things like that over time. Because other stuff takes its place, and then the inertia now favors the new thing that you're doing rather than the old thing, which yeah. is admittedly an expensive pain in the ass. I was well, I was driving in and I was driving past the railroad, which is how I get here every day. I drive past the railroad and I look at the railroad. And today I was like, the railroad, right? The railroad. It's so, it would be, it would have been to me so easy. Talk about multiverses. Like there's a version of me that, this is, this is your sliding doors? Could one little yeah. change could have made a difference? Yeah, there's a version of me that just stayed in the ski resort town where I grew up and is still there. There are dudes like that in every... I mean, I rode up the lift with a guy who's like, I've been, in, I've been at Whistler for 32 years. And I was like, right, I could have been in Girdwood for 32 years. And that would... Like, that's an interesting version of me, the one that stayed mm-hmm. in Girdwood. But there was, there was, a, there was a, a version of me that really wanted to work for the railroad. Oh really? Yeah, I mean huh. there the, the the ski resort as a me, young adult, as a kid and a young mm, adult. Okay. Yeah, I, I, mean, I that I get. I mean, getting to fly drive around in the Truman car. I mean, that sounds pretty fun. Pretty fun. But like, as when I was a kid looking at the future, I really wanted to be a ski lift operator. That seemed like a great job, and I wanted to be uh, uh, so many jobs at at the resort. I wanted to be the 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 person that. Um, I wanted to be on the ski patrol. I wanted to be one of those people that walks around the resort with a walkie-talkie and a baseball hat and is like taking care of business at the resort, you know. And and that was a thing I could have I could have pursued that job. I never ended up having a job at the resort, but my sister worked at the resort for years. And but then the railroad, like to be, I, I was friends with a guy who was a conductor. Uh, th- this was a grunge rock friend of mine, and he was one of those grunge rock people that had a straight job that was kind of fascinating. I mean, most rock and roll people have a straight job that's not fascinating. You're right. just a bar- bartender somewhere. Well, in order but, to make it go, you kind of have to have something uneventful. That's yeah, but this, this guy, had, he, his job was that he had started as a brakeman working for Amtrak and had worked his way up by the time he was 30 years old to like conductor on 
routes leaving Seattle. And he wow. had one of those jobs like being an, an airline pilot where you worked, you were on two days off three or something. And then he did the most amazing thing. I was pretty good friends with him at this time. And I understood enough about uh, railroad culture to know that there are two separate tracks. You are on the conductor track or you are on the engineer track. And there's no crossover. Hmm. If you're on the engineer track, you start at the bottom and you work your way up and you're an engineer. And if you're on the conductor track, you become a conductor. But you're different worlds. And he got to be a conductor and gave it all away and started as started to, as an apprentice in, on the engineer track. Started over at 30 years old because he wanted to be up in that engine on those three-day trips across the plains or whatever. And and uh, he has since sort of disappeared from my life. He he became an engineer and and literally. Drove that train high on cocaine. No. Probably not. No. <laughs> but like, uh, you know, drove that train off into the tunnel of, of the future. And um, watching those trains this morning, I was like, wow, what if I had just gone to work for the railroad? Like, it's so elegant. Mm-hmm. They're tracks. Literally, you're on a track. You don't have to worry about if you're on the right track. You are on the right track, <laughs> or yeah. you're on the wrong track, and that's terrible. You you're gonna figure that out pretty fast too. Yeah, we all wonder about those things, but that's a particularly interesting one. I mean, I guess there's worlds where I was playing, still playing indie rock or being a waiter, but I like the idea of the the, the train thing. What train- was what other than playing indie rock? What was what was the what was the fantasy job that you had that like you think back and go, what if I had? Been a hot, a hot I, air balloon I, I pilot. Kinda, or well, I mean, the ones that were well, there were a couple that were supply, surprisingly in reach because um, <clears throat> I, I did. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to do design of different kinds, and I think at the time, I maybe in retrospect, it's kind of surprising how much more in reach those things were than I expected. Um, I never in the modern age had anything like I want to be a baseball player <laughs> or anything like that. But um, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's strange, though, because th- there's a funny thing that happens. I think you've, you've kind of addressed this in the past, but it's kind of funny where, like, you, you watch somebody for a while, you watch what they're doing, you turn away from it, and you come back, and you're like, whoa, that guy's an engineer on the railroad now, or whatever. You discover these people who have been, like, quietly building this super interesting career, and you kind of never noticed it because they were mm-hmm. doing something else, or mm-hmm. you, were, you were more focused on the, maybe the music part mm-hmm. <laughs> at a certain point. But I think those people are, 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 are super interesting. And of course, as always, I'm I'm very envious uh, in a weird way of people who uh, joined the army when they were young. Oh God, so am I. I uh, but all of this, I feel like, comes back to the fact that I I am I am still just now, even just now, grappling with the fact that that I do not have access to a multiverse. <laughs> right? Like I, you, you al- don't even get like the newsletter. I've always lived. I lived my whole life as though. The, as though the, the multiverse uh, like exchange station was going to be open to me and I was going to be able to walk in and say, now I'd like to be an army man for 25 years. I think that's probably less uh, silly sounding than you realize. Because yeah, I bet that's true. <laughs> because- 
because no, because I mean, it pulls together several threads about your life and your self-assessment that I find very interesting. I mean, one of them being that you are in some ways more interested in breadth than depth. You'd like to learn a little bit about many, many things. I think that kind of matches up with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it matches up with the way that, you know, life kind of pinballs us around and we end up going into this place we never expected and wasn't that interesting. Um, but it would be nice to have a little view into what that would have turned out to be. That's a scary idea. Right. I mean, I, and, and part of that is that I, I'm more interested in breadth than depth, but now, now well, that I, me if I, I, I probably put that kind of glibly. No, but. I think that's, I think that's generally true. But now that we're in our forties and we see all these people that have tremendous depth, yeah. I would really like a breadth of depth. Oh, brother. I, yeah. I mean, I don't now mostly I, I have to deal with other adults cause I have a child. And so, like, the parents of other kids, oh, boy, they make me feel terrible about my life. Um, <laughs> there's, there's one guy who's a scientist, and he's not just a scientist. He's a biologist. He's not just a biologist. He works on a very, very specific kind of frog. He does very specific oh, frog work. And I he's, love that. He's, like, the go-to guy for that kind of frog. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's and the, I, and he's I the really, guy. Uh, I don't want him to know it, but I desperately envy that. Yeah. Yeah, oh, that's and that is the and that's the Matthew McConaughey in a contact problem <laughs> to bring it around, which is that part of what made that role so infuriating is that he is this person with this like uh, this sort of global religious wisdom, but he's like a young surfer asshole, mm. and that fantasy that you would be. That you would be young and yet all already be. This is the thing that Hollywood does to us all the time. Like, oh, here comes the world expert on frogs, and it turns out it's a twenty-four-year-old actress, Ugh. right? I mean, we see it's the James Bond. It's like that, remember the Keanu Reeves movie with the with the dolphins, Johnny Mnemonic? No, I didn't see it. Oh uh, well, I mean, it's it's this, and this is. Uh, I don't mean this to sound quite the way it sounds, but you know, there's a lot of incredibly uh, talented men and women out there playing many roles. But there used to be a thing, I think, especially in the '90s, of taking a certain kind of very attractive young actress and trying to sell her as uh, as like the science person. And yes. it's, I won't even always say it was the actress. I think a lot of it was the material wasn't up to it, and so you end up everybody sounds silly. Yeah. And that was like such a thing for a while. It's just that in this case, it's Matthew McConaughey, who's the uh, young woman. What was that Timothy Dalton movie where uh, Timothy Dalton, James Bond, where the... Oh, um, with... Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. The girl with, with the eyes from the, the movie. The, yeah, the gal with the nose. <laughs> she's, she's the one with the nose from Starship Troopers. Yes. Uh, I know exactly who you mean. And she's, right? uh, she's, uh, she's like uh, Vagina Clitorington or something. She's, yeah, some she's a well-known of, scientist. But she's, yeah, a scientist or a nuclear oh, physicist of some kind. Denise? Denise Richards. Ah. Who, who was... Who very, was, very, very handsome woman. But she was, uh, yeah, she was like... Uh, not Does she have a lab coat, John? She, she may have had a lab coat. I, I'm trying to think. Wasn't she married to the guy from Two and a Half Men? I think she was married to Charlie Sheen. Yeah, Charlie Sheen. Uh, Before anyway, he was a tiger. <laughs> anyway, yeah, her her role, her commanding role as like the super scientist in that James Bond movie was, I think, the, the that was the example. That was the peak moment. That's about like, a big peak. Wow, really? This is the this is the one, huh? This is the. <sighs> but but I, but I feel like this. I feel I felt like in a way that sneaks into all of our minds, and we all have this this idea that like, well, there are some twenty five year old super scientists who also happen to be 
models and surfers, and uh, and so I'm comparing myself against them somewhat. But at this point in my life, I'm not the expert on the frogs. Yeah, and that and being that's so that, that's such a it's so seductive. Can you imagine? Like, what do I do? Oh, I do this frog. What what am I doing tomorrow? This frog. What uh? What am I going to be remembered for? This frog. I know everything easy, about this frog. It may not be easy to explain, but it is simple to explain. <sighs> like to describe exactly what I do with these frogs is going to take some time. But you can just all you need to know is I'm the go-to guy for this one kind of frog. Yeah, you got a question about this frog? Yeah, I also know about other frogs, but this guy is my this is my guy. Yeah, <sighs> I uh, I uh, you know, but a lot of it is work. It's well, a you lot know of work. You know what? And it may be, it may be, Merlin, that one day when they look back and they say, two guys talking podcast, right? Uh-huh, two guys uh-huh, talking uh-huh. podcast. Have you heard of this? Two guys talking podcast? Who's the expert? Who's the expert on the two guys talking podcast uh, track? It's going to be Merlin Mann. Science farmers were their idea. Right, right. <laughs> Whoever said, who said thought technology first? Oh, oh well, farmers. I think that's, yes. If history goes a certain way, I think our future is going to be fine. And the thing is, we can't, that's the thing. We're inside it right now. We can't yes. see it. We cannot see. We're too close to it. We can't see the forest for the frogs. Mm, that'll do. <laughs> <laughs> do you think the presidents ever didn't want to meet with Billy Graham? I don't think a single president wanted to meet with Billy Graham. Every president since Truman met with Billy Graham. And I wonder if at a certain point they're like, okay, what's our week look like? Well, you know, we got to go uh, – we got to talk to uh, Gorbachev about uh, about this dinner and uh, – oh, dude, looks like it's about time to talk to Billy Graham again. Well, here's a question for you. Which yeah. presidents do you think were actually religious? Uh, people of faith who governed in part based upon uh, their faith. And beliefs. I mean, I, I think... the question? Yeah, I think Jimmy Carter was. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think probably Ronald Reagan was. Really? He um, seems pretty opportunistic. Yeah, I, mean, I don't George, know. He's, a, he's, a, he's an onion. He's, he's tough to peel. But, like, LBJ? No. Not at all, right? Well, yeah, but are you mean, like, I don't also would not want to imply that you cannot be a cynical, tough, uh, you know person in governance who doesn't also have faith yeah right right i mean, I mean it'll be a little bit you know broad but but yeah jimmy carter for sure i mean i think well, i think probably when he when he uh when he jerked it he probably genuinely felt bad <laughs> yeah right and 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 despite george uh bush juniors george w bush's like <laughs> despite him being so terrible you genuinely did get a sense that he uh, that he believed in his that he believed in his religion and he believed in and he was yeah, motivated. I, 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 I kind of get that. I get that he has – like at our church, they had all different uh, – like when the kids were in Sunday school. So you got the, you know, you the sanctuary thing everybody goes to and then you got Sunday school and all the little kids would go to Sunday school for their grade. The grown-ups got to choose different groups, study groups if you like or classes based upon partly mm-hmm. demographics. Based upon partly like what their interest was. And so there was like a hip young singles Bible study group. Um, there was the like I, – I, they all had fantastic names. Like I remember Lamplighters was one of them. Um, they, they had these, these great you know New Testament kind of names. But, uh, but then I remember this one. Dr. Russell Cotterell was the leader of this one and it was like the MIT of 
adult church classes. And uh-huh. if you went in there, you didn't read the Bible. You studied the shit out of the Bible. And you brought a fucking concordance like a gentleman. Mm. And you had to really sit down and talk about and turn over big ideas about, you know, the stuff that people even outside Christianity enjoy talking about. The paradox, the trinity. Like, how does that actually work? Is there is the Holy Spirit really? Did, I mean, does he get really one-third of the credit? Like, how does this work? There's all kinds of fascinating stuff when you get into, like— you know, as, as I'm sure you must feel on some level, the discussion of Christianity can be extremely interesting. Yeah. Um, and so why do I say that? Because I see Jimmy Carter going to Dr. Cotterell's class, and I see George W. Bush maybe just <laughs> hanging up by the Ms. Pac-Man. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't wonder if he really thought a lot. Oh, I think it's. A, I think I think it's a difference in. Uh, I think it's a. It's the transformation of Christianity, right? I mean, Jimmy Carter was practicing that. Uh, what we always imagined was the Christian spirit, and by the time George Bush got into the church, it was much more of this prosperity gospel. Well, wasn't his mostly? You know what? This is so awful to talk about. I feel now. I feel bad, but wasn't his partly an arrival out of the uh, drying up? Well, yeah, but I mean, you dry up, and then there. If you if you are interested in going the religion route, then you you just you dry up, and it's like you came up the escalator into the job fair of religions at the convention center. You can pick whatever <laughs> resonates with you, right? You just and, see who's got the best tote bags. Yeah, right. And there are plenty of people that dry up and become Buddhists, or dry up and and go back to being Catholics like they were when they were kids. Uh, it seems like there must be a special appeal to a certain kind of slightly moist eyed. Uh, American Christianity. And I think there is, for sure. And I think, you know, uh, W was was in every way already pointed at this version of sort of Southern Baptists, uh, but whatever, the, whatever that has morphed into. Yeah. Where it's just like, if you, if you follow the four, you know, the four steps of like, give yourself over and so forth and so on, then... Everything good is going to happen, and you don't have any doubt anymore. And that's so different from the one that Jimmy Carter practices, mm-hmm. where they're like really churning. He's like a full time lifestyle guy. Yeah, like I mean, how he taught, he are we doing classes. it right? Are we yes. doing it right? Are we, you know, how do we help people? I mean, that's so different. And than he's like, like it's such an. I mean, I don't want to sit here and just lionize Jimmy Carter, but uh, <laughs> fuck that guy. But like, you know, you also really do get the sense that like whatever kind of human he is, that he does. There's something inside of him where it's probably virtually impossible to tell how much of his personal generosity comes out of his faith and beliefs, how much it comes out of his ethics, how much of it comes out of his heritage. But there's something to all of those things that make this Voltron of kindness that uh, I I find very admirable. Say what you will about the guy's presidency and you know wrecking the chopper or whatever, but like I he seems like a genuinely good guy. Yeah, and that's that's what I mean. Like like JFK, nominally a Catholic. We were all terrified of his Catholicism. The papist. You don't. You don't really a look at papist in the White House. You don't really look at the way he conducted his his own life and think, well, here there's somebody that really, like, really cares about Catholicism. Yeah, I got the exactly. I get the feeling um, rosaries were not on his mind when he was right. doing what he did. And so I look at all the U.S. presidents, and they all saw Billy Graham. They all profess to be practicing more or less the same uh, version, and. I do not see I do not see much evidence of it except in those two cases right Carter as the completely thoughtful Christian and George Bush as the completely like unreflective Christian and that's pretty that's pretty phenomenal 
it's hard to know somebody's heart. It's hard to know. And, you know, I, I don't know. As I sit here, I feel like we're being kind of unkind. But I, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. But, you know, in one of our mini lost episodes, I think I, I said something to you one time that really means a lot to me, which is that, and I, you didn't disagree with this, but like that there are, I, I feel like I have these friends where you could be friends with this person um, for, for 10 years. And it kind of only came up once or twice that they even, quote unquote, go to church. But there's something about the way they conduct themselves mm-hmm. that is really admirable and mm-hmm. kind and gentle and sometimes funny. And maybe they, they drink and play in bands and stuff. But there's nothing to what they do that, that's, that's about like proselytizing or judging. But they're always the ones who show up to help people out for stuff. Right. And that's the strain uh, that I see in somebody like Jimmy Carter and that I saw like in the people I went to church with. Are we getting into a bad topic here? No, not at all. I remember hilariously. Matthew McConaughey now. <laughs> Wait, no. <laughs> uh, we had a disagreement one time, you and I, a long time before we started doing this podcast. It was one of the, it was one of those times when you called me on the phone to yell about the Beatles and we started talking about something else. Here comes the third rail. <laughs> and it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a real telling moment where I said something like, Listen, I don't think if you're a Christian, I don't think you should smoke pot. And you said, what are you talking about? And I was like, practice what you preach. And you were like, it has nothing to do with it. That has nothing. One thing has nothing to do with the other thing. That sounds like me. Yeah. And I was like, I think it has everything to do with it. If you if you are if you're a Christian, you can't also be an alcoholic. And you were like, you're bananas. <laughs> you are bananas. The two things are unrelated. And we had this, we, we yelled at each other for like a half an hour. We did, was, yeah. Where I was like, no, no, no. If you're a Christian, you goddamn drive, you should drive the speed limit and you should, you, you Yours know. was kind of a, a walk the walk, talk the talk uh, t- type thing, right? Yeah. Where yeah. you're saying like, if you're going to be this, you should, you should, it, it seems to it seem to you that you should also have to be all these other things. Well, or it should show, right? Should, yeah, show. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it should show in all these other things that you do. And in, in a way, it's a kind of, it's the argument, it's the predestination argument. It's the Calvinist kind of like, well, you can't know whether you're going to heaven or not, but if you are one of the chosen, it would be exhibited in your action. And now that's a good time travel movie. Right? That's- predestination. <laughs> <laughs> they will know we are Christians by our guns, by our guns. <laughs>